from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So this week's podcast was voted to be about Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, who is another on the list of Jack the Ripper suspects, though he is quite low on that list. The largest amount of information for this podcast comes from the book Prisoner 4374 by author A.J. Griffith Jones. So let's get into it. Thomas Neal Cream was born on May 27, 1850, in Glasgow, Scotland. So, as we do, let's get into some history for that time. First, we will talk about the Compromise of 1850. By this time, disagreements related to slavery were straining the bonds of union between the North and the South. These tensions became especially critical when Congress began to consider whether Western lands acquired after the Mexican-American War would permit slavery. Adding more, quote, free state senators to Congress would destroy the balance between slave and free states that had existed since the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Because everyone looked to the Senate to defuse the growing crisis, Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky proposed a series of resolutions designed to, quote, adjust amicably all existing questions of controversy arising out of the institution of slavery, end quote. Clay attempted to frame his compromise so that nationally-minded senators would vote for legislation in the interest of the Union, The Compromise of 1850 is composed of five statutes enacted in September of 1850. The acts called for the admission of California as a free state, provided for a territorial government for Utah and New Mexico, established a boundary between Texas and the United States, called for the abolition of slave trade in Washington, D.C., and amended the Fugitive Slave Act. Also in 1850, future U.S. President Abraham Lincoln's second and four-year-old son, Edward, died from what was recorded as chronic consumption, which would have most likely been tuberculosis, but some speculate that it could have been thyroid cancer because there were a lot of conditions that fell under the sort of umbrella of wasting diseases. He was described as a sweet boy who absolutely loved animals. 
Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, was also published this year. That's an excellent book, by the way. The Great Exhibition was held at the Crystal Palace, which was a cast iron and plate glass structure originally built in Hyde Park, London, the next year and was considered the first World's Fair. The University of Sydney was established in 1850, and by the time Thomas was six years old, we would discover the first specimens of the Neanderthals in Neanderthal Valley in Germany, which I find extremely exciting. The Taiping Rebellion, also known as the Taiping Civil War or the Taiping Revolution, was a conflict waged in China between the Manchu-led imperial dynasty, the last orthodox dynasty in Chinese history, and the Hakka-led Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which were a Chinese theocratic absolute monarchy bent on overthrowing the dynasty. The conflict caused around 20 million Chinese citizens' deaths. But overall, the 1850s were described as a turbulent decade. So Thomas's parents were William and Mary Cream. They were described as quite religious, and when Thomas was around five years old, his parents immigrated to Quebec City in Canada, where his father managed a lumber and shipbuilding firm, and the family lived at least comfortably. An ancestry site and one other source indicated that he was the oldest of eight siblings. His biographer, W. Shore, wrote, quote, As it is too often when writing the life of a saint or of a sinner, the records of Cream's childhood are very meager. There is no evidence procurable as to the surroundings amid which he opened his eyes upon life or of the circumstances which molded his early years, end quote, and eloquently put, I think. Author A.J. Griffith-Jones, who has studied Dr. Cream extensively, even getting rare access to his prison records and so on, stated on a podcast that Thomas had a very normal upbringing, that he went to Sunday school and church, and all accounts seem to point to him having quite the happy home life as a child. In school, he performed very well, made high marks, and was quite intelligent. I didn't find any instances where he got into any real trouble while at school or was misbehaved beyond any normal, average child whatsoever. When he got to be around 16 years old, he became an apprentice at the lumber merchants where his father was working, with the idea that he would eventually take over and manage the business someday when his father decided to retire. Perfectly respectable, but... Then his mother became quite ill, and he helped take care of her, and it was at this point that he decided that he might want to go to medical school and get some medical training to become a doctor. His father fully supported this, knowing it would be a good investment, which I take to mean his father would also pay for medical school. So his father sent him to Montreal, where he attended McGill University, while there, he did very well and focused more on pharmaceuticals. Now, it was said that a couple of years into his degree, he began to get a little ornery, we'll say. 
He found himself low on money, though his father sent him a livable allowance, and Thomas was just blowing money trying to live a much more lavish lifestyle than his allowance could afford him, so he devised a plan. He went to the Commercial Union of Montreal with the idea that he would take out an insurance policy on the few things he owned. They insured his belongings for $1,000, which is around $23,000 today. He let a few weeks go by and then set a bit of a fire in his apartment so that there would be fire damage, then turned it into the insurance. Now, you know, obviously they were suspicious, but after some back and forth, they paid him $350 or a bit over $8,000 in today's money, and he was satisfied with that. And this deceit would be the first that would turn him from the, you know, good boy that he had always been into a life of crime. And also, during his medical school days, Thomas, who was rather charming and quite popular with the young ladies, who found him most physically attractive, contracted syphilis. So, the CDC describes syphilis as, quote, a sexually transmitted infection, or STI, that can cause serious health problems without treatment. Infection develops in stages, primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary. Each stage can have different signs and symptoms. Without treatment, it can spread to the brain and nervous system at any time of any of the stages. Symptoms of brain and nervous system compromise are severe headaches, muscle weakness, changes in mental state, and so on. And this, of course, doesn't include the sores and everything else that comes with it, right? And there was, at that time, no cure. So Thomas began to suffer terrible headaches, and he spoke with a fellow med student who was specializing in venereal diseases. Though the friend said Thomas would eventually go quite mad, they decided that a, quote, mediocre prescription of morphine would keep the headaches tolerable and whatever other symptoms came on, he would deal with them at that point. He graduated in 1876 after completing a thesis on, get this, the effects of chloroform. So for those that are not super familiar with chloroform, it is intended to be used as a solvent, a, you know, substance that helps other substances dissolve. Also, it is used in the building, paper, and board industries, and in pesticide and film production. It is used as a solvent for lacquers, floor polishes, resins, adhesives, alkaloids, fats, oils, and rubber. But in the true crime genre, we know that it is also used as sort of an injury-free weapon to subdue a victim quickly and quietly by pouring some chloroform on a rag of sorts and placing it over the nose and mouth of said victim to render them unconscious. So Thomas graduated from McGill University with merit, receiving his medical degree and Master of Surgery at a rather crowded ceremony in March of 1876. He was then 26 years old. The address given to his graduating class was titled, quote, The Evils of Malpractice in the Medical Profession, end quote. And this is quite foretelling, isn't it? 
After his graduation, Thomas fully intended on traveling to England to enroll in a postgraduate course at St. Thomas's Hospital in South London. His father agreed to pay for the move and all things were scheduled. But before this, he met an attractive young lady by the name of Flora Brooks. He whined her and dined her, as he knew she was the daughter of a very wealthy man, and within a few months' time, well, she told him she was pregnant. But he had already set up his leaving for England, you know, in a short time, and had no want or intention to get married, have a baby, and settle down. So he talked Flora into letting him perform an abortion on her. He had received his medical degree after all, and he didn't see the point in paying someone else to do what he believed himself perfectly capable of doing. He performed the abortion, believed he had done a fine job, gave her a day to rest, then sent her home to her parents' house. Only, you know, her father could tell she was not well and had a doctor come to their home to evaluate his daughter. The doctor, of course, immediately discovered how heavily she was bleeding, and her father traveled straight to Thomas and confronted him about it. After some threats, including with a gun, well, Thomas agreed to marry Flora, and in September 1876, they were married. Very early the next morning, while everyone else slept from the day prior's festivities, Thomas made his great escape and boarded a passenger ship headed to England. Once he landed there and settled, he enrolled as a graduate student at St. Thomas Hospital Medical School. The next year, it was said that poor Flora contracted bronchitis and died, though her death certificate lists consumption. And Thomas, not wanting to waste the chance at some free money, sent a telegraph to her father, demanding money owed to him as Flora's husband, after all. Reluctantly, her father paid him $200, which would be about $4,500 today. And this would be enough money for him to continue his playboy lifestyle. He loved the ladies, and they loved him. When not escorting the elegant ladies of Westminster, he was lurking in the alleyways of the lower-class ladies of the night of Victorian London. And if you are a true crime fan, then it is easy to remember what the state of the more poor areas of London were like at this time, because in just 10 years, Jack the Ripper would commit his crimes in this area as well. So at some point, he traveled up to Edinburgh, and in 1878, he qualified for a license in midwifery from the Royal Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons there. The takeaway was that he was a highly educated and skilled physician by the time he was done with his education. Afterwards, he actually returned to Canada and set up a medical practice in London, Ontario, but he was also moonlighting as a back-alley abortionist. I don't believe that it was for any ill intent, at least then, so much as he saw a significant need and the money was decent. But he was also extremely careful not to perform these in his actual medical office. 
So though he had been suffering for quite some time, his return to Canada did nothing to help with his ever-increasing headaches. Back in the UK, they had gotten so bad that he had been bedridden for a couple of days at a time. And then it was during this time that Thomas would commit his first known murder, though there is some question about him prescribing his deceased wife medications. In May 1879, the body of a young woman named Kate was found dead in a woodshed behind the store. It was noted that she smelled heavily of chloroform. Now, it was determined that she was, in fact, unmarried but pregnant at the time of her birth. You know, word around the campfire was that she had sought an abortion from a local doctor with whom, it was rumored, she was having an affair. It didn't take long for it to be discovered that it was Thomas who did admit that she had come to him for medications that would terminate her pregnancy, but he had refused to give them to her. He suggested that perhaps she committed suicide after some local businessman had, well, you know, had his way and compromised her reputation, if you will. And at that time, apparently chloroform was available to the public, which Thomas pointed out. But the inquest noted that she had some marks on her face as if she had been forced to inhale it and there was no bottle of it anywhere near the scene of the crime. In the end, though, there just simply wasn't enough evidence to convict him, but his reputation was tarnished. So with a soured reputation and an empty waiting room for work, he decided to make his departure and move to the U.S. and more specifically, Chicago. So he settled in what sources called the Red Light District, meaning the more seedy part of town where petty crimes and prostitution were commonplace. By 1880, he was known as an illegal abortionist. He hired a midwife named Hattie to assist him, but she also made sure to do extra things like rent rooms for Thomas to perform the abortions so there would be a higher level of anonymity though the police were very aware of what he was doing. But Hattie was arrested after the dead body of a woman named Mary was found in an apartment she was known to have been in. Hattie very quickly turned state's evidence against Thomas and testified that he had performed up to 15 abortions in a single day. She testified that he had confessed to her nearly to the point of boasting that he had performed no less than 500 abortions in his rather early career. She said that Dr. Cream had instructed her to leave Mary in the apartment and tend to her after her procedure. Now, Thomas's account of the events was that Hattie herself had performed the abortion with instruments that she had, and it had not gone well, and she had sought out his help to save the girl. Unfortunately, the jury saw before them a black woman and a handsome young white doctor, and they wouldn't convict him, so he was acquitted. Disgusting. But then a month later, another young lady died from taking medication that Dr. Cream had prescribed her. Now, he attempted to place the blame and extort money from the pharmacist who had filled the prescription. But the pharmacist went to the police himself. Ultimately, the investigation was inconclusive. 
Dr. Cream had also tried to blackmail one of his patients who had not paid his bill. Now, a little insight into our illustrious Dr. Cream, according to an article written by David Moloko. Quote, Cream's view of women had always been abnormal, but this abnormality was now becoming cancerous. On the one hand, he craved them sensually, sexually, and most all lustily. On the other hand, he was perplexed, frightened, and hateful of them. A source, which McLaren refers to only as the one who knew him, speaking of Cream, told him, He carried pornographic photographs, but spoke of such women in terms of far from agreeable. He was in the habit of taking pills, which, he said, were compounded of strychnine, morphia, and cocaine, and of which the effect, he declared, was aphrodisiac. End quote. Others who knew him said he had a hatred for females of the lower classes, considering them little more than, you know, cattle for the butchering. He was known to abuse aphrodisiacs and was intimidated by his own impotency. He showed a hatred for anything or anyone that should have but failed to arouse him. Even then, Thomas was a sexual psychopath. There is little doubt that he used his time in Chicago as an abortionist to critically administer his feelings for the value, or lack of it, of the lives of women outside his perception of morals and a moralistic sphere of existence. Now, in early 1881, a woman named Alice died from strychnine poisoning following an abortion in a rooming house barely even a block from Dr. Cream's office. The case was ruled a murder, but never solved. The location, the time period, and method made Thomas a likely suspect, though. Now, strychnine poisoning is a slow and horrifically painful death. Initial symptoms include tightness and twitching of the muscles, agitation, and hyperflexia or over-responsive body reflexes. There is stiffness in the body lockjaw, and frothing at the mouth. Breathing will become shallow as the eyeballs begin to protrude and the pupils dilate. Characteristic facial muscle spasms also occur where the eyebrows elevate and an open, sustained grin appears. Waves of this, it is said, come every 10 to 15 minutes. The skin can begin to appear bluish from poor circulation or inadequate oxygenation. These attacks can last three to four minutes, and the victim never loses consciousness. They are aware the entire time. Episodes of muscle contractions are classically caused by innocuous stimuli, such as turning on a light or loud sounds. The death can take hours or longer. I mean, it sounds most unpleasant. Also in 1881, Miss Julia Stott came to Dr. Cream's office to obtain pills for her husband, Daniel, after seeing an advertisement Dr. Cream had placed for a cure for epilepsy. Daniel Stott began to show signs of improvement, and Julia Stott returned several times for more pills. 
Now, it is rumored that Julia became enamored with the good doctor, as many women did, and they began having an affair. It was said she would find reasons to go into the city so that she could visit Thomas. And then, after a few months, Daniel Stott died and epileptic seizure was given as the cause of death. Now, for some reason, Dr. Cream decided it would be a good idea to telegraph the coroner to say the real cause of death was an error made by the pharmacist who filled the prescription. The coroner was skeptical and decided to give a sample of the prescription to a dog. Fifteen minutes later, the dog died. Daniel Stott was exhumed, and it was found that his stomach and intestines contained enough strychnine to kill three people. And so, Thomas was charged with the murder of Daniel Stott. He attempted to flee to Canada, but was arrested in Belle Riviere, Ontario, and returned to Belvedere, Illinois, to stand trial. Julia was arrested, too, but, you know, she took a plea deal and testified against Dr. Cream. He was sentenced to life in prison, hard, labor, and his time in prison was no picnic. Not that he deserved anything less, of course. He did arduous physical labor. The food he ate was not the high quality he had grown accustomed to in his semi-lavish lifestyle. He lost weight and aged quickly. And while it was said that his father disowned him, a brother and a sister wrote to the governor, along with petitions with surprisingly many signatures of people who could not believe that he had been a murderer, begging for him to be released. After 10 years in prison, the governor commuted his sentence and he was released. Thomas was now 41 years old. His father had also recently passed away, and he received his inheritance of $16,000, or over half a million dollars today. It was said that Dr. Cream tried to track down Julia Stott for revenge, even employing the Pinkerton Detective Agency, but eventually gave up the search. But make no mistake... His hatred of women had grown while he had been in prison, along with his drug habits, and he still suffered with terrible headaches. He decided he'd had enough, and he went back to London, England. Now, I found it really interesting that the year Dr. Cream was released from prison and decided to sail back to London was the same year that H.H. Holmes began his murder spree in Chicago. So, you know, little food for thought. However, a growing body of people believe that Thomas was in fact released from the prison in early 1888 and made his way to London quickly after, just in time for Jack the Ripper to make his appearance in Whitechapel. If the prison Dr. Cream had been in was as, quote, rotten to the core as it had been described, there is a very real possibility that he was released earlier. But it was also said that he traveled to England on the SS Teutonic, and if that is the case, the earliest he could have arrived would have been September 1889. And Jackie Boy took the last, or what is believed to be the last victim in 1888. There were others after, but they haven't proven unequivocally they were Jack's work, but I digress. Thomas was back in London 
had to set up shop and was back to being a back alley abortionist by 1891. He was living on Lambeth Palace Road, which at that time was a hotbed of poverty, petty crime, and prostitution. And he wasn't verified there for more than a month when a 19-year-old prostitute named Ellen died of strychnine poisoning. A week later, 27-year-old prostitute Matilda died of what was believed to be alcoholism. At the time of the girls' deaths, there was nothing to link Dr. Cream to them, but there is evidence that he tried to blackmail some prominent citizens concerning Ellen's death. During a quick trip back to Canada, Thomas bought 500 strychnine pills from a drug company. He then returned to London, and the poisoning deaths spontaneously continued. Two more young sex workers, Alice and Emma, were murdered by strychnine, but after Thomas had spent the night with them, so to speak. The killer was now given the official moniker of the Lambeth Poisoner in the press. Also during this time, Dr. Cream's health began to wane. The headaches were becoming ever more severe, and his vision had become blurred, and the many nights of trying to read by the light of one candle while he was in prison didn't help. He was diagnosed with extreme hypermyopia and was given glasses to help regulate the imbalance of his eyes and improve his sight, and his focus did improve. And yet his headaches continued to worsen. His psychosis also deepened. Now, whether or not it was the nearly blinding headaches, the syphilis affecting his mind, his addiction to morphine or what, but as he killed and tried to blackmail others into paying him for silence, this is what ultimately brought the attention upon him. You see, through his blackmail letters, Thomas succeeded in drawing close attention to himself because not only did the police quickly determine the innocence of those he tried to anonymously accuse, they noticed something telling in those accusations made by the anonymous letter writer. He had referred to the murder of Matilda. Now, her death had been registered under natural causes, if you remember, you know, related to her drinking. So the police rather quickly realized that the false accuser who had written the letter was the serial killer, the Lambeth Poisoner. So Scotland Yard began keeping surveillance on the illustrious Dr. Thomas Cream because they were well aware of his penchant for sex workers. They also began to investigate his history in the United States and Canada and quickly learned about his conviction for a murder by poison in 1881. In June 1892, he was arrested and charged with six murders as well as extortion. After the five-day trial, the jury took just 10 minutes of deliberation to find Dr. Thomas Neal Cream guilty. In giving the death sentence, Justice Hawkins told Thomas that his willingness to murder was, quote, so diabolical in its character, fraught with so much cold-blooded cruelty that it could be expiated only by your death, end quote. 
According to the same article from David Moloko, an article published at the time in The Lancet, the leading medical journal at the time, while noting that Cream was obviously guilty, went on to say the following, quote, To the psychologist, however, this case is one of enormous interest, that he willed to do the murderous deed, or in other words, acted under conscious motive, there appears to be no shadow of doubt. Leaving aside the absurd legal proof of criminal responsibility, the knowledge of right and wrong, or of the nature and quality of the act. Nor can we argue in Neal's favor impulsive homicidal insanity as actually understood. At the same time, it is difficult to believe that the convict perpetrated these unutterable crimes with a mind constituted to realize their enormity and with a power of will equal to inhibit their commission. End quote. The hanging of Thomas Neal Cream took place in November 1892 behind prison walls. The executioner, James Billington, put the rope around his neck and reached for the handle to release the trapdoor on which Thomas was standing. Seconds before he pulled the handle, Billington claims that Dr. Cream uttered the words, I am Jack the, you know, dot, dot, dot. As was customary with all executed criminals, his body was buried the same day beneath the flagstones of the prison along with other executed criminals marked by one initial. His body was disinterred in 1902 and moved to London's Municipal Cemetery, and he is now buried in an unmarked grave. So Thomas is suspected of killing many more, of course, but we will never know the full truth. Now, was he Jack the Ripper? highly doubtful, and the only one to hear him allegedly confess was the executioner, who might have falsely reported what Thomas said so that he could, you know, gain the notoriety of being the man who executed Jack the Ripper. But then again, the additional Ripper murders past the canonical five did stop after Dr. Cream's death. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment. I can't really answer, but you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes. But most importantly, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I'm continued to be humbled by that. Thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.